This is Terence B. Eichler. We're going to give you our talk lines, our open the station that listens to you. This is Terence B., the Reb, the Reb with the cause, and the cause is you. I don't claim to know everything, but you can't talk about anything. Our good friend and producer, Ron, is on board. Ron, just tell us the phone number in case people want to join the dialogue and come on in. Just tell us what the number is that people can call in. What's that number? Hi, the number that people can call in? All right, well, you can call Jay Root if you got the number. You'll give them a call and uh, let us know what uh, what's on your mind. We've got a bunch of things to talk about today. And, uh, of course, as we go into the month of ER, this is the second day of Rosh Kodesh. The skies are gray and cloudy, but there are there are bright clouds right behind them that are going to give, that are going to give way to sunshine, sunshine and beautiful weather. But, you know, they say the April showers bring the flowers that come in the next month. If you didn't make Birkas at Elon, Take a look outside and see if you can find a tree that, uh, that you can make the brook on. You can't say it now because, as you know, some of the trees have blossomed late. And, you know, people like that in life also. Sometimes people tend to blossom a little bit later in life. You know anybody that's a, that's a late bloomer? Somebody who might have gained access to their uh, the gifts that a cutter's broke was given them a little bit later on in life and to start flowering after that? I'd like to hear about that. Maybe you've got a story you can share with us. Give us a call right here at, at J. Rugar. We're going to get that number for you, and you can just, uh, if you're on the web, so you know what it is, just go right to jrugar.com. They'll give you a number, and you can call in the studio and join our dialogue. It was Holocaust Memorial Day last week. Interesting, some articles that I saw said that people were wondering why did they make a Holocaust Memorial to have something called Tisha B'Av, which is the National Day of Jewish Mourning. What do you think? Is that something that... Uh, that we should continue, or do you think that just the fact that we have Tisha B'Av should be sufficient and there's no reason, in fact, maybe reasons not to make a, a quote-unquote secularized day of uh, Holocaust Memorial Remembrance? Some people feel, no, it's a good thing to do, and it's entirely distinct from the National Day of Morning of Tisha B'Av, although some people are not quite sure whether the, um, the two are, are related, but I know some people were actually trying to start a movement to say it's not helpful, and in fact might be detrimental. What would be the reasons that somebody might say that it's not a healthy thing to do? Does it take away from the hashivas, from the importance of what what remembering the the tragedy of what happened during that terrible tekufa was, and that other times in Jewish history where Kali Yisrael was persecuted? And we still remember. But we remember that on Tisha B'Av, which is the National Day of Jewish Mourning. Is that sufficient? I mean, we do remember the destruction of the base of Megash every day. So is there a need for a special day that has become very highly secularized, by the way, in a lot of ways? What do you feel about that? Give us a call right here at J-Root. Now, I want to begin our broadcast as we renew our relationship by giving a... Um, by giving Shvach, first of all, to Akadosh Baruch for giving us the opportunity to be able to talk to all of our, our friends and, and listeners in the J-Root family who appreciate everything that is, uh, is being done here to be able to promote Torah, our Batsas Torah, to promote Torah and to promote the ideas that are inherent in leading 
a healthy Jewish lifestyle. These are the things that we're here for in this world. And all you have to do is look around and realize that everything just falls by the wayside. But one of the things that I think that we have to pay tribute to, and I want to say this right at the get-go, and you can tell me how you feel about it as well, which is the Jewish mother, the Jewish wife and mother and daughter and sister, the Jewish woman in general. We had a beautiful uh, shir last week about the nobility of the Jewish woman and how far from the concept that um, some of our friends in in other um, arenas, shall we say, try to put forth the idea that there's inequality between men and women. No, we don't say there's inequality. We say there are definitely distinct, noticeable, necessary differences in in how we approach Torah and mitzvahs because we have different roles, just like a coin has a different role than a lady does. So I mean a coin superior to a lady, a lady superior to Israel? Not at all. It just means that we have different roles. So I wanted to just give a a, a statement of thanks to the Jewish mother, who, when you think about it, is really it's the highest and noblest occupation that anybody can have. And if you're a Jewish mom or a Jewish mother or a Jewish daughter and you feel the same way, let, let us let us know about that and how you feel about those who would try to usurp that role from you and make you feel like you're anything but that. And you see that actually in Tanzria, right here. Now take a look. If you look where it says, the Be'er B'nai Yisrael, they more Isha, that speak to the B'nai Yisrael, saying that when a woman conceives and she gives birth to a, to a male, then she's going to be in a state of tummy for seven days. Now, take a look at Rav Shimshon Raphael Hirsch. He brings down something phenomenal, and my good friend Rabbi Zalik Fiskin points this out in Growth for Torah, which, by the way, from the name of our show these days, is we have two names for it. Um, you can tell me which is the subtitle and which is the main title, but it's called Straight Talk America, where we give you Sikha's degree, and one of the major underpinnings of the program is growing for greatness, to grow for greatness. As uh, my good friend Morkai Weinberger does in all of his shows, he tries to bring us to a level of understanding and a level of insight to be able to help us make us just be better who we are as people. Anybody who says, I'm happy the way I am, is really missing something. Either they're really not happy the way they are, or they are happy the way they are, and they're just missing the boat. How do you miss the boat when you just say, I'm happy the way I am? Well, I don't want, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. And I am leading up to the idea of the nobility of Jewish motherhood, by the way. But there was somebody who went to a museum, I believe it was an artist, called the Blind Museum. You ever been there? person enters, and it's totally dark. And the idea is to be given the experience of what it means to be totally without sight. As the Lord calls it, a sagi nohar. Somebody who, uh, who can't see at all. They, you've probably noticed if you walk into a dark room that Hashem made it that your eyes are able to adjust to the light. But in this museum, it was different. As you entered into the museum and continued further on, instead of your eyes adjusting to the light, the darkness became almost palpable so that it was deeper and darker and your ability to see was virtually nil. Your eyes did not adjust to the light. You, you couldn't see to the right or the left. It left you was pure, total darkness. Upon exiting the museum, they um, they spoke to the guide, and they became aware that the guide herself was somebody who was blind. 
And somebody asked her if she would have been, well, what, what she felt was was worse, having not been born with with the gift of sight, or had she been born with the gift of sight and had it taken? Was she, where, what should, did she feel would be, you know, a, a, a less desirable thing? She said she couldn't really answer that because she had born had been born blind, without sight. But then she added something which was really the the um, the pivotal factor in how people began to understand the experience that they had gone through. Of course, nobody said anything to her about it, but to those who heard what she had to say, it was striking, as it may strike you. Somebody said to her, well, um, if if you had the ability to to see, and they could give you an operation, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want that? She said, no, not at all. But what about if the operation wouldn't hurt a bit and you just take a pill and instantly you'd be able to see again? No, she wouldn't want it. Why? Because she's happy the way she is. She's used to it. She likes it. And she wouldn't want to be deprived of that experience. Now, of course, somebody's on the level of being Samaya uh, Pichelko. They're happy the way they are because they accept it as a gift and a challenge from God's world. But that's one thing, to be happy with what you've been given and not feel you've been deprived. But to be at a level of satisfaction when you know that there's so much more that you could achieve and see and be and do in terms of fulfillment, in terms of accomplishment and purpose, why would somebody choose to be willfully blind when you have the ability to see with clarity, with lucidity, with precision, with appreciation and understanding. Are we all like that to a certain degree? I'm happy the way I am. No, I don't want to see anymore. I don't have to see anymore. I like it the way it is. Well, isn't that kind of like the way uh, that apple pie and coffee syndrome goes? The fear of taking the next step because we just don't want to you know, rattle, rattle the boat a little bit? Remember that story I told you? fellow comes over from, from Europe, doesn't want anybody to know that he doesn't speak English, because he's embarrassed, doesn't want to feel self-conscious, wants to feel like he fits right in. So he asked a friend of his, look, I'm getting hungry. What I can say that I can have something good to eat? So his friend tells him, you say, apple pie and coffee. Everybody like apple pie and coffee. So he goes into the local cafeteria, sits down, the waitress comes over and says, yes. He says, apple pie and coffee, which he brings out promptly, and he thoroughly enjoys Enjoyed it so much, he had it again for, for lunch. Apple pie and coffee. And there it was, right firm, the steaming hot coffee and the delicious apple pie. Again for supper. Apple pie and coffee. And there it was. Now, I like apple pie and coffee. You know, a nice cup of coffee with a gashmaka piece of apple pie. Delicious. However, if you had it three times a day, every single day, for months, two months, three months, I don't think he'd be so eager to have it. I mean, it's like that with any type of food, right? So he tells his friend, tell me to say something else. He says, cheese sandwich, cheese sandwich. Great. Walks back in the cafeteria. Waitress comes up expecting to say the normal, but this time he looks up at her with a big smile and says, cheese sandwich, cheese sandwich. And he learns how to say that, cheese sandwich. So she looks at him, she says, white or rye bread? He looks up and he says, apple pie and coffee. Boom. Kaboom. Right back. Retreating to the initial position of that which he was most comfortable in. I'm happy the way I am. I don't want to change. I don't want to rock the boat. don't want anybody to notice. Nobody wants to rock the boat. But if we don't 
step out of our shell, how are we going to grow? Rabbi Abram Tversky says a beautiful thing. A lobster. Now, we don't eat lobster, right? It's a shellfish. It's not kosher, so of course we don't eat it. But we can learn something. But what can you learn from a lobster? Well, in order to survive, in order to live, in order to thrive, in order to grow and go to the next stage of development, a lobster at regular intervals has to shed its shell in Gonson entirely, meaning the protective covering that keeps it safe from all the other sea creatures so that it can't be consumed is its shell. In order to grow, it has to shed that shell, which means at that moment, it has to totally leave itself exposed to the elements. It could be eaten, it could be consumed, it could be killed. But you know what? If it doesn't shed its shell, that, that means death. There is a certain risk in taking off the shell, but the risk is far less than the probability that it's going to die if it doesn't, meaning it's an inevitability that if it doesn't shed its shell, it is going to die. It's not an inevitability that if it sheds its shell, that it's going to be consumed and eaten. So a Kaddish Baruch who places this instinct within the lobster to know you want to survive, shed your shell. All of us have to understand, if you want to grow, you've got to go outside yourself a little bit. You've got to take that step outside the bounds of safety and security. I'm not talking about going on a wild roller coaster ride and great adventure, you know, 900 feet up in the air, not knowing if you're going to come down again. That, that's not going outside yourself. That's being, in my opinion, that's just being plain stupid. A thrill for no reason doesn't make any sense. However, however, when you step outside yourself and you're willing to grow and grow for greatness by being the best that you can, by taking those positive steps, and we're going to walk through many of those steps. And by the way, Rabbi Mordecai Weinberger's book is uh, called The Lies, which is a, a, a terrific primer on how you can step outside yourself. Hopefully we'll be talking to him and hearing more about his thoughts on it so he can get even further insights into that. But you got to step outside yourself a little bit. Be bigger, be better. Think about something that's challenging you. You know, Navarnik has a great saying, what you can't do, you must do. That which I think I can't do, I've got to do it. And you'll find that you will achieve things that you never even began to think that you could. If you strive for greatness, if you grow for greatness, you're going to be fantastic and happy and fulfilled business. Now, speaking of being fantastic, happy, and fulfilled, the highest and noblest occupation, you might think it's being a brain surgeon. You might think that it's being uh, a, uh, a senator or the president of the United States, or I guess... Some people would wonder about that. But you know what the Torah considers to be the highest and noblest occupation, at least in, in terms of what we understand um, a woman's role to be? That is motherhood. Motherhood. Now, I'm not talking about people who, who want to be mothers and can't be. The fact that they even want to be already achieves their purpose for them. Um, but I'm talking about the ability to pass on to the next generation who we are as Am Yisrael. And again, it comes from the Parsha, and Rabbi Shushan Raphael Hirsch talks about it. By the use of the expression Tazria here, it, it only occurs elsewhere in Voracious. And what is it talking about in Voracious? It's talking about the activity of plants, the continuation of their species. And the mother's role in producing progeny is looked at as a purely material physiological process. It's just anatomy, right? And with that one word, the whole idea of Tumah is shown. 
So Rabbi Hirsch is telling us that the highest and noblest occupation on which the whole future of the human race is built, the whole future of humanity is built, and in which the whole constitution of womanhood finds its purpose and quintessence and goal is the process of the production of a new human being. That's, that's the quintessence, the greatness of a woman. The person originates, grows, and exists, kind of like a plant, and the noblest and most glorious name that the human tongue can utter. And by the way, when Rabbi Simpson Rafael Hirsch wrote this, he wasn't just talking about the, about the Jewish mother, which obviously we consider to be the quintessence, but he was talking about motherhood in general. The noblest, the most glorious name that a human tongue can utter, the name mother. Ima, mommy, mama. Reminds one at the same time of the purely physical, unfree process of the, um, the human origin. And if anywhere, it's surely here that we have to establish this fact, my friends. That in spite of this, once a person is born, you know what? You are a morally free agent. Above all, the mother, the mama, under the fresh impression of her passively and painfully, no doubt about that, having to submit to the forces of the physical laws that a Kaddish Baruch has put in the world, as or at the most sublime procedure of her calling right here on planet Earth. It has to reestablish again the consciousness of her own spiritual height. What am I getting at? It's only after this impression of the lack of freedom, the lack of freedom of will has completely passed away. What does she do then? Then, by an offering, by a Corbin to undertake to allow herself of her own free will, now she does it because she wants to, to give herself up to the whole spiritual height of her calling of woman and mother, which is now beginning again with all its momentous and, yeah, no doubt about it, painful moments and to allow herself to re-enter the sanctuary of holy, happy, loyalty, faithfulness, to duty, to her obligation, the noblest calling of all, as a Jewish mother. I, I think that's absolutely phenomenal. What do you think about that? Um, call our website. Go to our website. You're on the website right now, so you can see the website. Call us at the station. Let us know what you think about that. If you're a Jewish mother... Do you feel ennobled? Do you feel enriched? Do you feel that you do have the highest and noblest occupation? Or do you just feel, boy, all you do is wash dishes and take care of the kids all day and you don't see anything noble in it? Well, if you don't, call us and we're going to tell you exactly why you should feel so great about it. And if you do feel good about it, share it with somebody else. Right here on J-Root, the station that listens to you. This is Parents B, a.k.a. the Rev, the Rev of the Cause, and the cause is you. A rebel against a life without meaning, value, and purpose. Because when you do have meaning and value and purpose in life, then you can go about your daily business, whatever it is that you do, whether you are a mother or a housewife or a, a girl in seminary or a young man who's in yeshiva or a balabas that's going to work, whatever you're doing, you can rise to greatness at your own level without having to be like anybody else. Just be your own wonderful self. That's all that's asked of you. Be yourself. Hey, I mean, everybody else is taken, right? And why would you want to be any, anybody else? You are going to be the best that you can possibly be. You don't need to be anybody else. I think it's probably why we all love to hear 
great motivational speakers. You know, whether it's somebody like um, Robert Pesacrone, or just a friend, or um, in a different tack, you know, Charlie, Charlie Harari, or um, any of the great people here that we know on on, on J Root, the people we listen to, the great Rubunum here. They're all after one thing, and that is that we should elevate ourselves to grow to be the best that we possibly can be. When you're listening to a station like J-Root, what are you plugged into? You're plugging in because you want to be better. You want to hear different music. You want to hear things that are going to pertain to your life, where you are now, and what you can do to be better. And that, that really should be the purpose of any media, right? Of any medium. The whole purpose of listening to other people is that I can gain a further insight into who I, who I can be, the, the goal I can achieve. And, you know, one of the things that that we can come to understand is that if you're going through a tough time, you got to find a Ruchni's guide to assist you if you're suffering. You don't have to go through things by yourself. And, again, if you look in the partial, you'll, you'll see a, an interesting expression that you may not have ever thought would relate to this, and that has to do that if the coin will see him on the seventh day, the priest is going to see him on the seventh day when the person is in the state of Tomei. So what is the, what's the Torah requiring of us, my friends? A coin has to be the one to make the decision about whether a person is afflicted with saras. He's the only one who can do it. Why is that? And that's because the Kahanim were spiritual people who taught Chachma, wisdom to others. They themselves were on a level, a madrega of spirituality of Ruchnius and a level of Chachma, and they couldn't just keep it to themselves. They had to give it over. They were compelled. They were mandated to give it over. So they would be able to advise those who were afflicted with Saras to check through their behavior and to correct their faults. In other words, they'd walk them through things that they had done or been through, and not for the sake of confession, as it were, per se, but really to come to an understanding of what it was that caused them to be in that situation. And it would also teach the person how to how to daven to a Kaddish Baruch for help. People need help in how to daven. You know, well, why do you think there are, there's so many books on davening? Why do you think, you know, praying with fire is so popular? Or Rabbi, um, Rabbi Schwab has a magnificent book on Tzila. Rabbi Monk has a book on Tzila. Um, so many swarm on Tzila that tell us how to break through the barrier because... If you learn how to daven properly, then you're being connected to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. So the Kahanim would be the people that would show Kal Yisrael how to do that. They'd give them advice on how to look look at their faults and how to daven to a Kaddish Baruch Hu to get help. And more than that, the Kahanim themselves would even daven for the welfare of that person. It's brought down by the Sforno. You can take a look at it there. Now, that's a very valuable lesson for us because... Somebody who finds that a Kurdish Baruch who has sent that person a particular difficulty, a challenge, an affliction, what does that person need to do? They need to find a spiritual mentor, a guide, to lead them out of the depth of their despair, who's going to be able to point out areas in which you can improve yourself. You know, my friend, you can try this. You know, I know you. Try, try this. Maybe... Try getting home a little bit earlier for Shabbos. Maybe try getting Shabbos candles a little bit earlier. Maybe try learning two lakas a day in Hilkas Lashon Hara. 
maybe be more positive. Maybe be a little nicer to your kids and your wife. Maybe when you come home from work, instead of just plopping yourself down, ask your wife what type of day she had. But whatever it is, that person who knows you can give you a little push, a little nudge in the right direction. And you can ask them for advice on what to pray for. You can even ask the person to daven for you. It doesn't take the place of your own davening. But when we're all davening for each other, you know what that creates? It creates a... A, uh, an abundance, an outpouring of Shefa and Bracha. And those, those who listen to this, you're going to gain a lot to whatever it is that you're going through. Now, I don't have to mention the recent tragedy that took place with the Sesame family. But on the other hand, I do have to mention because you can un- well understand that the, the comfort and the aid of the mentors that Rabbi Sassoon has are those people who have the wisdom, the insight, and the sensitivity to help them to be able to sustain themselves in this unbelievably difficult period. Now, the people that I've heard who've spoken not only to Rabbi Sassoon, but to all of us, have said very, very remarkable things. It's not my place here to go over everything that they said, but I do think that if you listen to people like um, or Rabbi Haber who was talking about it, or Rabbi Mansour, or Rabbi David Ozir, these people who gave them advice, the things that they had to say were so profound and meaningful and deep that for each of us, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Reisman was talking about certain things. They weren't preaching. They weren't saying, this is the reason I'm pointing the finger. But they were saying, if you heed this advice, you will be comforted. You'll be able to rise above this and you'll be able to deal with it. It's not a panacea. But it means that when we look at somebody who went through difficulty like that, extreme pain and difficulty, then we should be able to take, take heed ourselves and realize there's something that each and every one of us has to do, that every one of us has to do to make ourselves better. And I'm not talking about looking at somebody else's faults. We have to look at our own faults. And by the way, it's a very interesting thing also that you, that you gain from the partner. One of the ways that we can grow for greatness it says, Tame Tame Yikra. And the Mitzvah shall call out, Unclean, unclean. Tame Tame. What is that telling us? It's an amazing thing about when you see a fault in somebody else, what we have to do. Do you go and criticize the person, or do you look at yourself and ask yourself, Hey, maybe I have that same fault. When you see somebody who gets angry, do you immediately criticize that person, or do you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I wonder what elements of that I have in myself? When you see somebody else behave in a way that wasn't really terribly nice towards somebody who, um, let's say, was asking for Zodok, and the person kind of brushed the person away, you look at the person and say, well, you know, why did they do that? That person really wasn't very nice. Or do you look at yourself and say, maybe the next time somebody comes and ask for something, maybe I'll just be a little bit more generous and I'll be a little bit nicer. The point is, in the Parsha, where it says, Tome, Tome, and this is what's, what he has to call out, the Shalom writes that you can really read this as Tome, unclean, as an unclean person says about others. Meaning like this, that is a person who finds fault with other people What's the person doing? Classical case of a psychological term called projecting. You ever see a projector? 
takes light, projects it on a wall. Well, this is called projecting. Maybe that person's really just projecting their own faults. And if you ever any any um, thoughts as to where, you know, the best guy for psychology of the study and improvement of human behavior come from, it's right in the Torah. Because if you look in the Gemara and Kedushin, you check it out, Kedushin, because I'll tell us, those who try to invalidate others do so with their own blemishes, their own movement. Amazing. And the Shnei Lucas of Bris, the Shlach Kodesh, brings this amazing concept. That that means one way of finding out your own faults and blemishes is to see what faults you tend to notice in others. Think about this for a second. Let's scrutinize what we tend to look at in other people as being faults. And then use that as a barometer, as kind of like a a detector to see what's really going on in us. What do we tend to pick on in other people? And if you focus on certain negative aspects of others, I'm not saying it has to be, but it is entirely possible that we ourselves might have those very same tendencies. You ever think about that? I want you to give me a call. Tell me what you think about that. Um, call us right here on Unjim. And if you feel that at times you're focusing on negative aspects of other people that maybe you might notice the same faults in yourself, share that experience with us. Also, if you know that, if you tell others that someone has a certain fault, they immediately suspect you of having the same fault, well, you're going to be very careful before saying negative things about others, right? And for this reason, if we develop the habit that if someone tries to speak negatively about others in your presence, which the Holy Time tells us is definitely Rosh Hashanah, you're going to say, when it's appropriate, you know something? And kind of like, remember, like sticks and stones? Those who try to invalidate others, they really do blemishes. Well, they may. They may tell you, hey, who are you to tell me that? But you tell them. Could be. Kenzine maybe has blemishes. People will definitely refrain from speaking against others when you're And even when you're not present, they too will be careful because they're going to be afraid that others too will look at them as having the same faults that they try, they're trying to ascribe to others. Very interesting. That during his visit to the United States in 1939, on behalf of his yeshiva, Achanan Wasim, Hashem avenged his blood, was asked for his impressions of America. And those who posed the question figured, oh, he's going to really just, you know, let him have it and talk about a society that really nobody, um, that nobody is... Uh, Yerushalayim, he's probably going to really denigrate them. But no, he didn't. Not at all. What he did was rather amazing. Listen to what Rabbi Hanan Wasserman, second son of the Bracha, said. He said, American youth, the young people in America, have the greatest potential of any I've ever met. They're sincere in their search for the Emmas. And once they're taught the Torah view, they develop into the finest B'nai Torah. He had such a positive outlook. That's what we have to do. Be positive in our outlook. Be positive in the way we look at things. All right, we'll be back in a minute. We're going to take a little break. A little acapella. Arana will give us a little break for about five minutes. We are going to come back with some amazing things that are going to make your day and help you grow for greatness right here on Straight Talk America on J-Root, the station that listens to you with Parents B, a.k.a. the Reb, the Reb with a cause, and the cause is you living life to its fullest, licensed by the state of awareness to live life to its best. Parents be I the Reb, 
I don't claim to know everything, but you can talk to me about anything. Stay tuned for more right here on J-Root.
אני מאמין, באמונה שלימה, מביאס המשיח, אני מאמין, Friends and your relatives, 
you may have noticed, are bound at some point in time, maybe to do something to irritate you, right? It happens. Maybe we do it to others. But if you keep in mind that the alternative to having people around you, what's the alternative? Being all alone. Then you're going to look at the drawbacks of having friends and relatives as a price well worth paying. So when you buy something, usually focus on what you're gaining. You know, overall, why, why, you know, I pay this money for, for buying uh, that beautiful couch. You don't look at it like that. You look upon the couch or something that you're going to be able to sit upon comfortably on Shabbos afternoon. So in a similar way, keep your, keep your focus on how you gain from other people. And, and then you're going to be free from focusing on how much they annoy you. <laughs> you know, think about that. When you look at other people in a positive manner, be positive, and you're going to be a lot calmer. And when you search for the strategies to influence them to stop annoying you, it's not going to annoy you so much. In other words, don't be so tight. Don't get annoyed so easily. Make it one of your responsibilities not to get annoyed. And when you meet your responsibilities, you'll be amazed at just how happy you're going to feel. Who, I mean, who feels happy when you meet your responsibilities? I mean, do you feel happy when you go, get up and go to work in the morning or you take out the garbage or you did something that you're supposed to do? Well, let me tell you something. You really should. And again, right here, current events in Parshish Mitzvah. It says, Zostia Torah This is going to be, this shall be the Torah of the one stricken with Saras on day of his Torah, of his purification, and it shall be brought to the Kohen. Fantastic, even Ezra. Gotta take a look at this. Again, Rabbi Pliskin brings it down. Even as it says that the Torah states that that person is going to be brought to the coin, not that he will come on his own to the priest. Think about that. He's brought to the coin, and not that he's going to come on his own to the coin. What's the nafkamin? What's the difference? So the reason is that because after the Torah clears, the Torah clears up, he will not want to bring the korbanos that he's supposed to bring. When a person has Taras, that person will definitely claim that, of course, he's going to bring the necessary korbanos when the Taras clears up. Oh, sure, I'm going to do it. But once he's cured, hmm, the person can easily forget their obligations. You ever notice that? So now that nothing is pressing him, he's going to focus on other things and not on meeting his obligations. You may have noticed this. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of it sometimes. I, you know, I, I would say in looking back, when I was younger, I know it was an attitude that I had and it was something that I worked on and I've noticed it in other people. And again, we, you know, you say when you notice things in other people, you got to look at it as kind of a forensic test of what's going on inside you. But some people do find it difficult to meet their responsibilities. And when he favors someone or wants to impress them, they might make, ooh, you know, I promise you this, I promise you that. But when the time comes to keep their obligations, then they do anything they can to avoid meeting them. But a person that's got integrity, a person that has integrity will derive pleasure when they meet the responsibilities, and they're not going to need other people to keep nudging them, coercing them. They don't want to do it. They take the initiative to do it. And this is the Kiddush. The more pleasure that you feel when you meet your obligations, ah, I did what I was supposed to. That doesn't mean you're supposed to get a medal every time you do it, but you can feel good about it. The more motivated you'll be to meet them. When you feel a sense of satisfaction, I did the right thing. I did what I was supposed to do. You should feel great about yourself. Yeah, you should feel good about yourself. One of the ways that you can come to really feel great about yourself is if you start thinking before you speak. What? I don't think before I speak. Well, there's a saying that we used to have 
written in our office. It said, engage your mind before you start your tongue. Think before you speak. Think before you speak, before you say anything. Think about what it's going to mean, what the consequences are, and how somebody is, is going to be affected by the words they say. It says that the calling shall command to take from from the person who is to be purified two birds that are alive and pure. Take a look at the Rashi there. The Rashi says that the reason birds were taken for the process of purifying the Mitzvah was what? What was the reason? The reason was that birds are constantly constantly chirping. Since Saras comes from speaking Russian horror, which is a matter of chattering, so the Mitzvah needed birds for his atonement. Neither can they get Now, Rabbi Yeruchel Lubav has commented on this, that the Torah is giving us a key, a key insight into a lies line of person speaking against others. What really is the the motivating factor. So, a root of the problem is that the person keeps on talking without thinking, just keeps yabba, 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 just keep blabbering, blabbering, what are you saying? Just as birds keep making noises, they keep chirping away. And so, too, is this person just making a lot of noise. You may have noticed that, right? The person needs to think about the goals, what is about to say, why am I saying this? So, here's what I want to leave us with for today. This is the thought I want to leave you with. Before you speak, somebody, before you say anything to anybody, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your kids, whether it's your parents, whether it's a friend, whether it's a co-worker, whether it's an employee or an employer, think about this. You can write this down. What is the purpose of what I am about to say? What will it accomplish? What effects will it have? Well, let's try that again. What's the purpose of what I'm about to say? What do I want to what do I want to gain from it? What do I want it to accomplish? Do I want to make my wife feel better? Do I want to let her know that I'm hungry? Do I want my boss to know that I want to raise? Do I want the, the person I'm working with to know that I appreciate what they're doing, that I want them to, you know, stop bothering me? What do you want to do? What's the purpose of what I'm about to say? And what's it going to accomplish? And when I do say it, if I do say it, what effect will it have? I don't know very many people that do this. I know some people who have trained themselves to think like this, and it's a cognitive process. What's the purpose of what I'm about to say? What will accomplish it? What will it have? And once you get into the habit of asking yourself these questions, you're going to always think before you speak. And this will enable you to overcome the tendency of speaking against others. I want to tell you something. Um, as many of you know, I come from a um, an acting and, and, and producing background as well as broadcasting, right? One of the key principles that I'm telling you is just fantastic thing for anybody to learn because as Rabbi Victor Miller tells us we're all actors in this world to some degree, right? Saying things and doing things that because we want to, you know, even go go against the grain in some ways to be able to give a good impression, to make ourselves better and to help other people. Sometimes you just gotta act. Well, one of the key principles that I learned from a tremendous acting teacher was an actor has to ask themselves numerous questions before they say a certain line. And a really well-trained actor will ask themselves numerous questions. Among them are, where, wh- where am I coming from? What do I want to accomplish by saying this? What will happen if I don't say it? In other words, a really good actor will go through a, a litany, mentally, of questions pertaining to his role before he utters a word and in every line that he or she says. Now, you don't have to be a theatrical performer to do this. Just in our daily lives, we'll think about 
what we're saying, what's the purpose of what I'm about to say, what will it accomplish, and what will it have, and what effects will it have. Purpose, accomplishment, and effects. Purpose, accomplishment, and effects. Now, if you put the Russia tables together, it's P-A-E, which um, if you pronounce it the way it might be read, it says the E was a Y, but it could still be pronounced as pay, right? As pay. Purpose, accomplishment, and effect. Think of it as pay, right? Purpose, accomplishment, and effect. And it is going to pay off big for you, if you do this right. When I say something, what's the purpose of what I'm about to say? What will it accomplish? And what effects will it have? How is it going to pay? What is it going to pay? Purpose, accomplishment, effect. Once you get into the habit of asking yourself these questions, you're always going to think before you speak. And that will enable you, that will enable you to overcome the tendency of speaking against others. Brought down in Das Torah Vayikra. Rabbi Arun Chanoch Hoffman, in Yerushalayim Irakoyish, was a very close friend of Rabbi Ben-Zion Yadler. And they would discuss, they would work on ways to improve themselves in which they could make themselves better, especially especially regarding their speech and their speech at home. Rabbi Arun Chanoch would say that when a husband comes home and asks his wife, oh, what's the need? Or, oh, what would you cook today? It's really a question that is superfluous. I mean, why do you need to ask this question? Whatever your wife made for you, you're going to find out what it is, right? It, it can easily lead to anger and quarrels. Oh, you made that again? Why even bother to ask that? So why don't we just start today, each and every one of us, each and every one of us, starting by thinking about what's the purpose of what we're going to say, what's it going to accomplish, and what's the effect it's going to have. And then I'd like you to get back to me, and I want you to call in and let us know how it worked at 718-683-5858, or you can reach me at Eichler Media, E-I-C-H-L-E-R Media at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments, E-I-C-H-L-E-R Media at gmail.com. I want you to take this principle, right? Keep in mind the, the letters, right? Purpose, accomplishment, and effect, pay. And let us know, how did it pay? Did it pay you back well for thinking about that? What did you avoid by speaking that way? How did you help the situation better? And how did it make you feel more accomplished? Okay, so let's all try it this week. And when we focus on our own faults and not that of others, then we're not going to speak against other people. We're not going to speak against others and say negative things about them. And again, right here in the partial, it says, Siva Akhain. Rashi states that, that um, because I'll tell us, what does a cedar symbolize? What does a cedar tree symbolize? Gaiva, because Saraf comes from Gaiva. And what's the cure for a person that the person should have refuah? They should humble themselves, give themselves a good dose of anivas, which is symbolized by the scarlet that comes from the lowly worm, by the small hyssop. The Chofetz Chaim commented that this is one of the major reasons that a person speaks, Lashon Hara, because of gaiva. Somebody who speaks against somebody else looks upon themselves as being bigger, better than the other person, feel they have a right to say anything negative. If they were aware of their own faults and limitations, they wouldn't seek out the faults of others. Right in Shemir Salashim. So here's what I want to leave us with. The greater your awareness of your own errors and negative traits, the less you're going to focus on others. Don't be down on yourself. Just be aware of them. And when you focus on the faults of others, you're not going to gain anything. But by becoming more aware of what we have to fix up, then we're going to be improving our own character, 
and we're going to free ourselves from speaking against others. So let's let's do this. Let's focus on what we have to fix up on ourselves, not project others onto what's wrong with them. Let's think about what we have to fix up. Let's think about the idea of PAE, which is purpose, effect, or purpose, accomplishment, and effect. What's the purpose of what I'm about to say? What is the... Uh, what do I hope to accomplish by saying these words? And what effect is it going to have on somebody else? I want you to get back to us. Reach us here at JRoot, or you can reach me at E-I-C-H-L-E-R Media at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to uh, our ongoing dialogue on the station that listens to you. JRoot, come on board. Be one of our sponsors. You'll be glad that you did. And uh, let your friends know about it. Around the corner, around the world, JRoot is here for you. I want to thank all our good friends at at JRoot for being on board with us. I want to thank you for joining us. This is Parents B, a.k.a. The Rev, licensed by the state of awareness to live life to its fullest. I don't claim to know everything, but you can't talk to me about anything, so our talk lines will be open. You can reach us. I want to hear from you. And remember, this is not just monologue. It's dialogue here for you. Parents B, a.k.a. The Rev, green light, straight ahead. Remember, in the words of Hillel, the rest is commentary. Now, go and learn.